Are you wondering where family physician roles fit into team-based care? Do you want to know more about team-based care from the perspective of a physician? Yeah, me too. Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. I'm Sarah, a medical anthropologist and team member in the Innovation Support Unit in the Department of Family Practice at the University of British Columbia. And I'm Morgan, a family doctor and also a team member in the Innovation Support Unit. So Morgan, so far this season, we've explored 10 different roles in team-based primary care. Today's episode is our final role, family physicians, and we intentionally left family docs to the end as they're kind of both the foundation of primary care and probably the role that is most familiar to most of our listeners. Sarah, you're right. The scope of the family doctor probably isn't entirely surprising to listeners, but given the current context of primary care, we know that family physicians are stretched beyond capacity right now. So today we're going to explore the physician role from the vantage point of teams and how that work might change as you move into a team. So we're going to hear from a number of different providers about how they work in teams and what's needed for teams to be most effective. We'll also consider what teams provide to support family doctors and what team leaders, who are often family physicians, can do to enhance team function. And how would you describe the scope of care for a family doctor? I know that family doctors generally care for patients from cradle to grave, but what does that look like in practice? Sarah, I'm glad you asked. So let's start with 105 priority topics for my college, shall we? So A, abdominal pain. No, okay, I won't go through them all. I think really where I want to start is more with the relationship. I often say that we're specialists in relationship-centered care, and that extends to the whole family for many family doctors. And, you know, the scope of primary care very much is what we do, almost by definition. And so that's acute, chronic care, mental health, prevention, wellness, that whole range. And it can be within practice and outside of practice. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we do clinically. And I think what's interesting about family medicine, and obviously I'm biased, is how it evolves with our practice, with our population. So we become increasingly experts in the people that we support. And that includes the knowledge that we gain over time. This is something I maybe hadn't thought about so much, you know, how someone who's working in an inner city practice like yours really has a totally different area of expertise and scope as a result of working with a certain patient population than another maybe newer to practice family doctor or someone coming from a really rural setting who would have a totally different kind of focus of their practice. Yeah, I think that's what's really interesting. And if you move, I've moved, my practice changed my skills, my knowledge changed because I evolved with my practice. That, I think, is something that we probably all do, but I think is one of the hallmarks for family docs. We often talk about the different roles that family doctors have. There's that family medicine expert role, but then there's a whole bunch of other things that are in the roles that family doctors hold. Communicator, collaborator, health advocate, manager, scholar, and professional. Those are kind of the official different roles that we talk about when we're teaching. And I think Those are interesting just to highlight because how we fill those roles changes in a team as opposed to being a solo provider. And you can move between those roles for the same patient, right? You could be acting in that expert space and then, you know, really moving to communicate with family and with caregivers, then working with other members of your team to take on that advocacy role. And I think it's that continuous shifting that makes the family doctor role so interesting and also so complex. Mm -hmm. Think about how it's actually working in practice. And one of the things that I found really interesting from our interviews was, for me, realizing that how family medicine is practiced and how a team works is also really dependent, not just on the population they serve, but on the model of care they work in. 
So whether it's a community health center, an urgent primary care center, a smaller sort of group practice, the overall scope of care doesn't change so much. They see all patients for a wide range of healthcare needs, but you know where, when, and how they provide care can be really different. That's a great sneak peek at our next season of the podcast, which we're planning to launch in the fall. It's going to focus on different types of teams and how they work together from solo practices to urgent primary care centers to community health centers and lots of others. And it's going to be a really interesting season. But back to today's episode, let's start by hearing from a couple of family doctors about where and how they work in primary care. First is Dr. Terry Aldred, who's an outreach primary care doctor with the Cary Sakani Family Services in northern BC. And she does so much care out in the community across multiple communities, with multiple partner nations, a bunch of different kinds of health centers, both in person and virtually. She works from a clinic in Prince George, but then also does a lot of in-person outreach across the region. So my name is Terry Aldred. I'm that cat from the class of nation on my mom's side. I'm a member of the Lucilla of the Frog Clan, and I'm a tea cream mixed European on my dad's side, and I'm calling in today from the Clay Lake Today Traditional Territory, otherwise known as Prince George. I'm a family doc by trade, and I work in a number of settings, including as a primary care physician with Cares County Family Services, where we serve 12 First Nations in North Central BC, uh, both in person and virtually. And I also work as the medical director for primary care for FNHA, as well as helping to stand up the First Nations primary care initiatives, uh, which will be 15 centers across the province. My outreach days start fairly early, and so I try to be on the road between 6.30 and 7, so I can get to community by 8.39, depending on road conditions. So it usually takes me about two hours to drive out, and then I show up in clinic and and kind of just hit the ground running. Our outreach days are generally super busy. We see patients all day, including home visits or going out to the schools. Sometimes we take part in community activities or lunches and provide education. And then we usually wrap up clinic around, say, 435. We have kind of operated that we will see whoever comes through the door. We try to be very low barrier to the point where, you know, we've built up our relationship with our communities that people actually drive in from neighboring towns on reserve to seek services. And Terry works with a large team of community health nurses and care aides who are distributed throughout the region as well. The nurses are often taking on these public health roles, including immunization, screening, pre and postnatal checks educational activities, and they also often will hold a lot of the relationship pieces. Because they care for patients across a very wide geographical region, her team are out in the community and they're responsible for triaging the more complex care to the doctors who maybe come in in these outreach roles. It's really interesting to think about how this team works because it is so distributed across a large region. They also have a number of different kind of roles that maybe you wouldn't be able to pull together in one clinic. She has access to counselors, mental health workers, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech and language pathologists, but all of these roles in kind of tiny little bits who she gets to pull in and work with in different ways. Yeah, so Terry really described the scope of practice, but that extra layer of the rural practice, both in scope and some of the geographical complexity, she travels a lot in order to get out to talk to patients and then relying on people at a distance to help her connect. And this is a great example of how physician care in rural communities will be very different than your typical urban family doctor's office, where the majority of care goes into clinic. Certainly there's outreach 
to homes or to other locations and to long-term care, but it's, it is quite different. And I think leveraging and leaning into the team and the different roles you have on your team is so important, and Terry does a great job. The way that Terry described how she works was so different from how Dr. Daphne Green, who works in a West Kelowna urgent and primary care center, described her practice when she spoke with us. And she works in a much more urban setting. The team still includes that wide range of health professional roles, but the ways in which the team connects and works together is very different because they're in this center altogether. And Sarah, Daphne's scope of practice is actually pretty close to Terry's in terms of cradle to grave and the different services that they both provide. And yet in some ways it's similar to also to many family doctors and regular so regular offices as opposed to the urgent primary care centers. But then they have in that UPCC some additional space for procedures and some capacity for managing more of that urban urgent care and helping with unattached patients. But actually a lot of it's pretty similar. And Daphne did a great job of describing how she works with the people in her team to get them to the right clinician and allow her to focus on what she does best. She talked about the patient journey into her clinic. When a patient presents to the urgent and primary care center, they're first met by a patient ambassador at the front door. So they're the first set of eyes on the patient. And this team member will, if they're concerned about a patient, report directly back to the team lead and they'll be patient will be brought in straight away. If things are looking good, then they'll come to the front desk One of the MOAs will check them in and then they wait to be assessed by the triage nurse and then they're given a priority as to when they need to be seen. So someone with a laceration or an injury or who's acutely ill will be given a higher priority. I think all that triage really helps for the undifferentiated urgent patients and then you can see how the team really helps with that. And that's important for the UPCC team and that's different than Terry's rural team. The teams are suited, I think, Sarah. This is the important thing to the populations that they serve. Just like my skills changed with the population that I got to know, both Terry and Daphne and the teams that they work in are providing service for the patients that they need to support. And so the teams organically look pretty different. And I think the way they connect to the teams can be really different, being co-located versus being highly distributed. And some of the adaptations that we've seen through COVID in primary care have really been part of how rural teams have worked together for a long time. Terry really highlighted in our conversation why working in teams might improve job satisfaction for family doctors, just because you do have that collegiality, different people to lean on at different times, and you're really not working alone in isolation. I think that's really true. I feel sort of selfish talking about this, but teams really help me. I mean, selfishly, right? They do. And being part of a team is a really important part of allowing me to do my best work. And when I'm not as connected with my team, I definitely feel it. And when I am reconnected with the team, it's joyful. And sometimes it's it's sad, the things that we have to deal with. And yet there's that connection and support across the team. So many memories, Sarah, of different things over the years from all the themes and the ways that I work with individual people and things that happen in strange runs of rare conditions that we then start to joke that we got to have our pseudo-seizure today because that always happens between Roz and I, that sort of thing that keeps the team connected. And we know that that kind of connection keeps everybody, all the providers, feeling better and working better. But to be selfish, it's particularly true for family doctors. And, you know, there's some great research coming out about this as well, about the link between working in teams and well-being for providers. The Center for Resilience in Healthcare at the University of Stavanger in Norway 
Now, this is really interesting because they're really connected with our patient partner, Carolyn Canfield, who's done some great work in resilience working with their team, and she connected us into them. But they've recently published a bunch of work on how teams influence adaptive capacity, and we'll link to some of those resources in the show notes. Our team here did a learning cycle on adaptive capacity in healthcare to explore what influences, enhances, or detracts from developing adaptive capacity or resilience in teams. This is kind of my, my passion area, so if I sound excited, this is why. Sarah, give us a quick definition. Right. So adaptive capacity really includes kind of three themes, aligning, coping, and innovating. So aligning is really being able to orient to patients and balance competing demands, negotiating across different levels of needs within the system. Coping is really about being able to handle external demands and unexpected things that might pop up. And then innovation is about improvising and finding innovative solutions to problems. So high adaptive capacity means being able to align, cope, and innovate. And I think the satisfaction piece just factors so highly into that as well. So Sarah, there's a lot of things that are very specific that can enhance capacity. Things like trust in the team, communication, knowledge, all the things that we've talked about. And our learning cycle really found alignment and how we can enhance capacity in the teams. And that, of course, is focusing on team development, openly discussing the challenges and ways of improving team-based care, creating space for psychological safety within the team, hiring for readiness and developing strong relationships, taking that time. We heard it this morning at our TBC advisory meeting, creating the time for people to work together on how they want to work together. Those are all very important things that are very much a theme of this whole podcast. And I think for anyone who's really interested, previous season of the podcast, we actually focused on this idea. So I'd really recommend that people maybe loop back to the resilience season. And so many of these things that we think of as kind of enablers of adaptive capacity in teams are developed through, like you said, Morgan, that intentional time as a team, that idea of working together on how to work together. We keep repeating this, but it's just so important create the efficiencies of a team by building that team well. Right now, the teams that we're building won't necessarily achieve team-based care and even, as you're talking about it, increased resilience. That was Dr. Christy Newton, a family doc, current president of the College of Family Physicians of Canada, and a colleague and friend. She really hits at home, Sarah, that the time invested, of course, in developing the team pays off. And we also chatted with Dr. Ann Nguyen, who's a family doc who now works with Doctors of BC in the Physician Health Program. And she shared a bit about her experience working at Kool-Aid as part of your team, Morgan. And a shout out to Ann's daughter who just graduated grade eight. Nice. I mean, team-based care is one of, I think, the ingredients to a thriving primary care system. So I think the work of PCNs and creating teams, functional teams, because as we know, a really dysfunctional team actually erodes people's well-being. But a high-functioning team, meaning a team where there's transparency, support, a healthy degree of management, but a healthy degree of autonomy, fair compensation, support, backup during illness and stress, all of those things are really, really key. So I think when you have a shared value system, that really helps and creates a very cohesive team where there's like equity, transparency, really excellent management where people feel supported and really encouraged to practice to their maximal scope. The work is hard, but people have an intrinsic satisfaction because they see themselves making a difference, right? And then frankly, what makes Kool-Aid work well is the team-based model means you can take time off and to go on vacation. You can take care of your family and you know someone's going to take care of your patients. And that's huge. 
And we've talked about this before in terms of the impacts that teams can make on the resilience of the system. But I think hearing it from family doctors who are saying, hey, teams, you know, make a big difference to my own health and well-being is really important. Especially in 2023, where we really need to have that. So Sarah, let's loop into something that I think is important. The change in teams and leadership and the role that a family doctor can play or in a team as a leader. So much of the culture of teams is set by a leader. There are things that leaders can do to enhance the capacity of the team. So what I've noticed works is when you have a leader who actually has taken the time to develop relationships across the team, who does come from a kind of a trusting mindset around the goodness of people and has managed to not let their ego dictate many of their decisions. And I will say most of the situations encourages the team to come together to discover where they can make some decisions together. Mm -hmm. Like where does the team have power to shape their reality? And that's where I've seen some success happen, where team members actually feel like they are empowered to be involved in decision-making in ways that make sense for them, that gets them engaged. And that can include even just our vision statement, our hours of operation, how we navigate our time at work, whether it's at home or in the office space. I think those things are really key. And the idea with compassion huddles, I think that anything that brings people together frequently as a touch point, whether it's even a couple of times a day, depending on how often the team gets together, at least weekly, with a purpose of really connecting with each other first, and then maybe seeing, okay, are there particular issues we have to think about and address as a team on a practical level? I think those kinds of things, to me, are some of the recipes I've seen work well. That was Dr. Raul Gupta, family doctor and one of the designers and facilitators of the Quality Team Coaching for Rural BC program. We'll link to this in the show notes. Raul worked alongside Dr. Dana Hubler, another family physician, to develop this curriculum for rural teams. Both of them now work with a team to facilitate the program, and it's been such an incredible resource. Here's what Dana said when talking about what they found was most important to supporting teams. What we saw when we dug into the research around this is that... Self and situational awareness are actually key enablers. We jump into all the mental models, all the structures, but self and situational awareness so that we're actually contributing to the well-being of one another. That's where we really came to is the evidence support that, but we skip mm -hmm. over that. We think about co-location and team mapping and team composition, but we skip over that teams are made up of people and they need self and situational awareness. That focus on people as part of teams is critical. Each member of a team needs to take time to consider themselves as both contributing to the well-being of others and kind of receiving that support, enhancing their own well-being. And leadership doesn't have to be formal. I don't have and haven't had a formal role in our clinic in terms of leadership. And yet, in different ways, I support different parts of the team. And I think it's important that we don't have to do all those things either as a leader or as a solo provider. And that's where the team is great, that we can each take different parts of the leadership the planning and the developing of the team. And I think as a primary care provider, I imagine it can be pretty easy to fall into traditional hierarchies, which might position the family doc as sort of the head of the team. And I don't think you can ignore the hierarchies, but really try to find ways to disrupt them, ways that create maybe new ways of working together that draw on the skills and talents of the full team. Sarah, I like that idea of going back to the different kinds of roles we have because it doesn't mean you have to be all of them at all times. And that comes back to that equity and distribution and sharing of authority and autonomy and accountability. So I think that keeping that in mind, and that's such a big change for people to think about. When you're all things, then you want to be parts of all things. It's a hard change. Got to let go of some things. You do. <laughs> and when you do that, 
I don't know anybody who wants to go back. I think that you find the joy in there. And that's the proof in the pudding for this is that there's a balance and there's that capacity that you're buoyed up by the team and you're doing the parts of the work that you like to do. And that's just, it's just so important. You're not giving anything up in a sense because you're doing little bits of it, but you're giving up the large chunks of it to focus in other areas. Carolyn Canfield, our friend and patient advocate and disruptor, really hits the nail on this. Most practitioners I know in primary care, at the end of the day, they really need time with their families. They really need time on their own. They need to get some exercise and they need to get rest. And they're not going to be sitting down and reading through the journals for an hour and a half that evening. So being able to interact with other professionals to learn what the latest evidence is or the latest practice or be able to talk about problems, be able to talk about stress, that's really important to me. We ask so much of our practitioners in the way of compassion and patience and generosity to their patients to be able to have the reserves to do that and to continue being the member of a family and a citizen in a neighborhood, it's pretty challenging. So I do think connection with peers, uh, shared adversity is a whole lot easier to handle than feeling as though you're alone with the adversity. So with all this, you might be wondering where to start. What types of team members or what skills are going to help? Or how can you enhance how your team works together? So first, I think if you're already part of a team, start talking about how you want to work together. Talk about your skills, connect regularly, make that space, and think about how you're working together. I mean, on occasion, we've gone round in the huddle, and each day someone will actually be asked, what's one thing about you? What's one skill that you have that maybe not everybody's aware of. And I learned recently that one of our social workers used to work as a dental assistant, I think, and she really understands the nitty gritty of getting funding for people who haven't got extended medical benefits. So the opportunity for team members to tell us a little bit about themselves at the huddle has been good. So Daphne's approach, and this is very much the approach we encourage through our team mapping as well, explore the edges of scope. Talk about how you do different parts of the work and then uncover those unique intersections between your interests and the scope of your work. And then appreciate how that uniquely fits into the team. Terry also shared a few ways that her team has been facilitating connections as a virtual team. Some of the enhancements to virtual work during COVID really changed how their team works together. I think that also helped with the team-based care method because even if we did connect as a team, say through texting or calling one another, now we were able to zoom in, say when the care aide was there, if they had a concern or if they wanted us to lay a second set of eyes on like a wound or um, if the nurse made a home visit and she was wanting to have the doc zoom in to update the patient on something. And so I think that made the virtual technology even more accessible and brought us into homes. And it also connected us in a new way to our allied team members. So one of the ways that we kind of helped to try to build that wraparound care and bring all the different people who might be involved in the care of an individual is by having case conferences. And we do get patient consent and then they can also decide which team members that they want uh, to be involved. And they can also decide if they want to be involved in the meeting themselves. And so we'll bring in, you know, different care team members that support those individuals. So we might have the doc there, the MOA, the nurse, and like a counselor, 
the care aides, the social workers, um, outreach workers, and different people. And so it also gives us the opportunity to learn from one another, to kind of learn what each other's scopes are, what each of the team members can do and are doing for a client or patient. So the idea of how we build a team and how we support one another in a situation where we aren't all always in the same spaces, but we are generally always sharing those spaces <laughs> over time. You know, I think team-based care when everybody's based in the same clinic still has its challenges, but it also has some ease in that you can do lunch and learn sessions, or you can talk to people in the hallway or, you know, things like that, that we don't necessarily have. And so it has been something that we've had to be very intentional about and keep coming back to. And for listeners who are maybe not yet practicing in team-based care models, there's so many small steps that you can take to get started. We asked a few of the physicians what advice they would have for people who are jumping into team-based care. And here's what Daphne had to say. Well, if anybody at all is thinking about growing into a team, maybe taking a nurse into the family practice as the first step, I'd say just do it. You will not look back. It will have challenges and frustrations, but it's generally, it's a win-win all around for everybody. I think particularly in an urgent care center where there's no fee-for-service model, it really works exceptionally well. When I was private practice, things like, well, baby checks, chronic disease management, new patient registrations. All of that would initially be handled by my practice nurse. Complex care plans was another great way of using a nurse where the nurse would see the patient first, go over any issues they may have, go through management of their chronic disease, make sure their lab work was all up to date, all that type of thing. Then I would see them, everything's there, and I can be the deal with the medical issues. Sarah, I think starting with a nurse, that's really good advice. In terms of what we learned a couple episodes ago, they have a really wide scope. They're a profession that we've worked with in hospital more closely, and there's so many ways that they can support primary care relatively quickly and naturally. That's a great suggestion. And Terry shared some advice about how to build patient engagement into your team's model. And so as part of our primary care team, there's actually a built-in patient engagement model where we go back and re-ask community, how are you feeling now? And so that cycle happens about every five years and the results have definitely been supportive of our approach. Working within CARES, the County Family Services, they have their own like engagement model. CARES, the County actually goes and does regular engagements with each of their member nations. They have their annual AGM, which they do in community, as well as ongoing engagement with, say, their chief and councils. So it's a unique opportunity, similar to First Nations Health Authority, where the community that we serve, our patients, are also the people who help govern what we do and ensure that the services that we offer are meeting our needs. Terry brings us back full circle to the relationship with our patients. So engaging the patients is critical so they understand what's happening and then they become part of the team as well. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this episode. And we're one episode away from the end of season five. We are. And I just want to highlight that we started with the patient in this season, and now we're bringing it back to the patient at the end. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. So then to wrap up this episode, what's the take-home message from today's Focus on Family Physicians? 
So first, I think family physician roles can vary considerably depending on the model of care and the communities that people are working in. This can impact how people are connecting in person or virtually with the team and really how the physicians choose to practice. I think number two is that the teams will enhance the overall capacity both to provide care but of us personally, and particularly for family doctors, getting that additional support helps with our well-being, and that allows the team and primary care to continue to work well. And the third thing, I think, the question of where to start, the best place to start is just to start. Take a small step toward team-based care by thinking about a single role you might bring into your team doing a few shifts with a team in your area, or starting to work with a team who's already in your clinic, maybe a little bit differently, maybe having some of those role conversations, creating those opportunities to connect and thinking about how you're going to work together. Thanks, Sarah, for letting me talk about myself and my role for the last uh, whole episode. Right? It was great. And thanks for listening to this episode of Team Up. Join us next week when we wrap up this season. And we'd love to hear from you as always, so please drop us an email at isu at familymed.ubc.ca with any reactions to this episode or ideas for future episodes. Thanks. Thanks.